2: Rap isn't for forward thinkers anymore. The people who are creators are creating often for clout, for money, for fame. The goals aren't the same. The people who created music back then in the so-called golden era were making music to express themselves. It's cathartic. There's a bunch of kids out there who rap really goddamn good right now. Like, I try and find them notes. I believe in the power of hip-hop. I believe in the power of great rappers. I'm Justin Jay. As a photographer,
0: I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip-hop moguls, world-class athletes, and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. Having an unhealthy fixation with the past is a common narrative theme from the aging high school sports star reveling in their former glory to Norma Desmond's refusal to face reality in Sunset Boulevard. For some, the allure of the proverbial back in the day is irresistibly comforting, especially if they suspect that their greatest accomplishments might be in the rearview mirror. Our guest today is a native New Yorker whose particular version of back in the day is truly captivating. In his new autobiography titled Son of the City, he recounts with vivid detail his formative years growing up on Manhattan's Lower East Side and his involvement with the vibrant subcultures of skateboarding, punk rock, and hip-hop. As a pioneering A&R executive, he played a pivotal role in supporting hip-hop artists. He made significant contributions to the success of acts such as De La Soul, Brand Nubian, Busta Rhymes, MF Doom, Everlast, and Old Dirty Bastard, But despite his involvement in numerous groundbreaking and pivotal chapters in New York's history, he steadfastly refuses to live in the past and succumb to the trap of a back-in-the-day mentality. So what does the next chapter of his life look like now that he's achieved cultural impact and creative fulfillment, but the financial rewards reaped by many of his peers have largely eluded him? We'll find out as we sit down for a conversation with one of the most enduring and influential figures from the golden age of hip-hop. Today... Music producer, A&R executive, Lower East Side native, and son of the city, Mr. Dante Ross.
2: Yo, yo. Going here. One, two, one, two, one, two. All hey, right, cool. Let me get the Bialy out of my mouth if you hear me clear? <laughs> Dante Ross, dude, welcome back to
0: New York, man. Really good up? to see you.
2: Nice to be here,
0: man. Um, a stone's throw from where I grew up. I know, I know. Well, we'll get into that in a second, but look, I want to get the plug in right away. Um, okay. Dante Ross. Son of the city. Yeah. Put your phone down. Stop scrolling. Go support print media and check out this book. Like, if you have any interest in the history of New York, in skateboarding, in punk rock, in the music business, in hip hop, it, it, it's a fascinating read. So, Thank I just you. want to say, I want to say congrats. You should definitely check out this. book. I appreciate it. Um,
2: are you you happy with the way it came out and how I it's am. been received so far? I am. Yeah, it's been received really well, man. I get like um, the reviews have been good. I got like a zillion heartfelt like. DMs from people. Um, what what freaked me out a little bit is how much people were um, focusing on my childhood, and I guess people didn't know the backstory. Um, and And I thought that was cool. And I thought it also was maybe strategic, smart that I um, didn't just tell the music biz side of it. And I feel like the childhood stuff and kind of my inner workings kind of captivated a bunch of people who read the book, um, the personal side of it. And I thought that that was cool. It, it, it um, confirmed what I already thought was um, you could tell a story about being the suit of a buster and all dirty bastard and all this, but maybe to share some of your life and your inner mechanisms of why you are who you are and did what you did would be um, well received by people and has been. So it's
0: cool. I'm curious because, you know, this book has so many really detailed accounts of um. Everything from production notes of, mm-hmm. of artists and songs you worked on mm-hmm. to fistfights to particular nights at a club to mm-hmm. stories. I mean, did you, did you keep a journal? I
2: mean, how I did. did you, how did you I remember? I had a journal, but there was, it was intermittent. Some years I didn't, some years I did, and I couldn't find them all. So I have a pretty good memory, um, and I kind of went through the memory banks, and I called a bunch of people up to ask them if it was this way or that way. A lot of times it was that way, not, not how I remembered it. You know, we have selective memory we want to remember like we're always the winner. We're always the, like, the good guy, and that wasn't the case, and I just want to be honest. So, you know, I just, fucking went deep, and and um, I had a lot of stops and starts during the course of making this book, and during the pandemic, I was like, you know what? Like, I had a, a bunch of friends of mine died, and I was like, you know what? Whether it was MF Doom or my old production partners or my godfather or, or Huff or, or whoever it was, I was like, uh, you know what? It's time for me to, like, get this down because tomorrow is not promised to any of us, and, and I'd like to have my story told before I'm out of here. I
0: love there's a great story in there with you and Mike D Mm -hmm. where you got a bunch of drugs in your pocket (laughs) and you get caught sneaking into the subway with a stolen MTA key. It's like that, that, that story perfectly encapsulates the old adage. You can't break the law while you're breaking the law. Oh man, I was like, you know,
2: dumb kid shit, you know? And um I think Mike D's mom, Esther, rest in peace. She, I don't think me and Mike were allowed to hang out for like twenty five years after that. But of course we hung out. But yeah, it was like he was my um he was my teenage um partner in crime kinda. I was always the criminal. He was always kind of the uh, the financier, if you will. Yeah, yeah, we had a lot of fun, man. He's a great dude. It's good to hear a little bit of a grimy
0: story about those guys because I feel like their their reputation has kind of been. Uh, spread, I had a to lot a of, I yeah. didn't
2: put in there about about uh, MCA. I just didn't I didn't think it was fitting. He's not here, so I couldn't ask him if it was cool. I just had one about us him hitting the architecture architect in the head with uh, a ashtray.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. He was those guys. You know, like they're uh, part of my youth.
0: Yeah, um, you know, so. This book really resonated with me on such a personal level in a lot of ways. You have a couple years on me, but I moved to New York in 1989. It was still grimy. And I remember that was the the summer when Three Feet High and Rising Mm. just came out. And I remember being so impacted by that album. I mean, there was a party down the
2: block from here we used to go to at the Triangle. You know that building right there. Um, that's where they used to do payday. So I was like, really, only a couple of blocks away from there. And my first apartment in New York City. I
0: literally moved from my parents' garage in small town Carpinteria, California. First apartment in New York City in 1989, 18 years old, 186 East Second Street.
2: Oh wow, that's the same, right near where I grew the up. The same block wow. that you grew up on. Yeah, I grew up at 171.
0: 70s. That's wild. And so you know, reading that book. And hearing your stories of... So you live right near El, El Bogato. The, so it was El Bogato and then a beer distributor. Yeah, yeah. And then the door that next to the... beer distributor was there when I was a kid. The, the door next to the beer distributor was
2: was the spot. Though. So those abandoned, those buildings were abandoned when I was a kid.
0: Yeah. Crazy. But I mean, you know, just hearing hearing the stories about, you know, block politics and the drug trade mm-hmm. and like the sense of community mm-hmm. and then later on, you know, references to save the robots and the world. Oh. Like it just, it brought back, it brought back a lot of memories for me. You know, Did you go to the world? I caught the tail end of the world. I yeah. went to the world. Well, I definitely yeah. went to robots though. Yeah,
2: robots was around a long time. Which is a funny thing. So the- Robots is like, whenever I went to robots, I knew uh, the night had gone too far. <laughs> I was like, it's just gone a little too far. I used to, my favorite thing
0: to do. I actually used to sit cuz it was my block. Like I would actually just sit outside across the street from robots and drink Forties and just mm. watch people go in and out. I mean, mm. that was just as interesting as anything else.
2: Was the garage the garage was closed, right? On the corner of that no, That was still there. Was still there. Yeah, yeah. Well, now it's a
0: fucking Rite Aid, I think. Where Gigi Allen died. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, you know, it just brought back so many memories for me. And you know, it's such the this book on one level is such a rich evocative history lesson of just how much New York City has changed? Man,
2: today. it's changed, but you know it's like the same as much as it changes. Like I was in Washington Heights on Sunday, and that shit was like New York City. I was like, I'm in I'm in New York City right now. There's salsa everywhere and, you know, fucking food, restaurants, the block hustling. There's, you know, like ladies half-dressed. It's like really lively. I was like, damn, this shit is really—I was on Dykeman. I was like, it's really going off up here. Felt like New York. It smelled you know, like New York. Good, good. So yeah. there
0: is some, so there's some areas that still have that. Yeah, sense I was in Bed
2: yesterday. Bed feels like the east, you know, like lower side used to feel. So yeah, I think New York is still alive. It just costs a lot more money to live here.
0: Yeah, you know. So it seems like this story of your book it almost operates on two parallel levels. And there's, there's, they both that, have the, that's the point. So they, you got it. They both have the theme of this, 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 um, this notion of of growth and transition. So sure. you know, transition obviously from being an intern. To an AR person to a successful record producer, but on the other storyline, there's this real transition from being an angry young kid mm-hmm. and transitioning away from drugs and alcohol and mm-hmm. substance abuse and transitioning into an area, into a place where you can kind of honestly and candidly like look at your own of ego and your actions and how that's affected to be accountable. personal relationships. I mean, it's a very, it's a very self-reflective and, and candid and honest book. And I'm wondering did you set out from the beginning to make it that way? Or I kind of did. But when, was there something about putting pen to paper that made you address things in nah. maybe a way you didn't expect?
2: No, nah, man. You know, look, I, I've been sober a long time, and part of being sober is um, rigorous honesty, you know? So I felt like I had to be rigorously honest. That's like part of the ethos of, of a 12-step program. So I kind of like used that as a guide of, to write my book. And my father was a really honest person. He was in the back of my head the whole time, like, tell the truth. Like, you know, I had this friend who I'll leave nameless. He wrote a, uh, a memoir, a kind of lower side memoir. And, and another friend who's a pretty big screenwriter, and he had read it, and I told him about my book. And he said, whatever you do, don't write the book like so-and-so. Be truthful you know, don't be afraid to be vulnerable because that's the part of the book that people like, like that's the the hook. And I was like, yeah, he's like, man, all the bad, all the good, all the bumps, all the bruises, all the wins, all the losses, having all in there, not just the wins, not just the great moments, like don't be afraid to share the truth. Um, and I took that to heart. And uh, my friend Seth Rosenfeld, he's the person who told me that. And um, I kind of just did that.
0: Yeah. And I mean, bravo. And I think that's one of the reasons why this is such a a powerful book because there, don't get me wrong, there's some very hilarious studio tales
2: and yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and
0: stories and shit yeah, like there's that. There's some bells and whistles, but you, that 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 doesn't make a
2: book. And that you know? also and that, you, make that comes with the territory. You know, that's going to be there probably. If you know anything about me, you know I'm going to talk about that, right? So I want to kind of show you and tell you some things that you probably don't know about me, and and what my motivations to do what I did were, where it came from, the good and the bad, the dysfunction, and and the um and you know the the hard work I did. I did a lot of hard work. And I get
0: the sense this isn't a book that you could have written fifteen years ago. No way.
2: I couldn't have written it until I got sober. There's no way whatsoever. I tried. I started it. I think the first version of the book I was I was uh, it was about a year or so before I was um, sober. Me and my dad tried to do it. Maybe two years. Then my dad got sick, and I tried to do it myself and uh he passed i put this shit down for like a solid five or six years picked it back up went through an ordeal with a lit agent that really pissed me off soured me on the idea i couldn't get a a big deal like um i thought i was gonna get and and i found out why my dad what it was my dad's struggles like and um during the pandemic i think um I talked to my godfather who passed away since then, and he told me I need to go do it for my dad and go do it. And I picked it back up, and, and I finished it. I knocked it out. You know, I had a lot, I'd had a lot of free time in the pandemic. So, yeah. you know, and I, re- I went through the whole thing A to Z and rewrote it, and that was it. That's the book. And what would the book,
0: if you did write it, or if you did finish it 15 years ago, it would not have been nearly as vulnerable? Oh, well, nah,
2: no, and I wouldn't have had all the, you know, I, I don't think I would have been able to be accountable. And I would have probably won everything. I didn't, you know, and um, that's not the way life is. It just doesn't work that way. So, you know, I think it's, um, my favorite writers are pretty honest, whether it's Raymond Carver or, or Paul Beatty or um, Charles Bukowski, those are the guys who I like to read, Flannery O'Connor. So I kind of wanted to, to, you know, do something that, um, I love this writer, Harry Cruz. He's like one of my favorites. He's a fiction writer, but he wrote a book about his life called Feast of Snakes. And uh, it's a pretty brutal book. And I was like, man, you know, he's really fucking honest and vulnerable and also really forgiving um, of himself and others. And I thought that that was important to kind of explore that. So I kind of used that in this book called The Day Tripper, which is Dr. John's memoir, the you know, the musician. And uh, those were kind of my guides. Cool. Well, so, you know, about about a hundred pages
0: into this book, there's a particular paragraph that, that really felt like it got to the heart of what this book is about or what it is to be an A&R person. Mm. And I think most people know what that stands for. Like I knew it means artists and repertoire. Mm-hmm. I knew it meant that you go out, you see a lot of bands, you scout talent and you're responsible for, for bringing that talent and getting them signed. But I think a lot of people at that point would think, okay, well, the record producer records the album and the marketing team sells the album. Like what, what, what is your role after the, right. after, after the band gets a contract or after the act gets a contract, it was really fascinating getting to read just how influential you were in kind of shepherding the careers of some of these acts. whether I'm it's a like different kind Soul of A&R guy.
2: I mean, we'll break down, break down exactly you know, like what I think, that I means. think Diddy is probably like an A&R guy. I think he's an A&R guy like me and, and my friend Orlando Warden and a couple other guys I know. Um, Me, I go to every session. I don't want to be too intrusive. I don't want to be too intrusive, but I want to kind of make sure everything's on point and people are functioning. I want to see the way they're working. And I have an idea here. And you have to pick and choose when you interject those things, because if you do it too much, they go nowhere. So you have to pick and choose your battles, earn your artist's trusts, and then you can kind of guide the record if you're lucky, right? And, And the best records I ever was involved with, I didn't have to do that much right? I had to amass the credits. I had to be a cheerleader. I had to help pick singles. I had to make sure the vocals are loud enough. Mixing, that's the hardest thing. Vocals are often not loud enough. So you get lots and lots of passes. You have to set up the mastering, but you also have to be a cheerleader within your own company. So you have to like, you know, wave that flag like, oh, this is P-Rock and CL Smooth. This is the greatest shit since sliced bread. You know, or you might have to get the record to the right DJ, like because my promo guys aren't doing it right or whatever it is. It's, it's a really... um multi-tier job or it was back then. And and you have to bond with your groups. That's what's really important. There has to be a camaraderie. They have to feel like you're part of the team, at least for me. And I think nowadays it's a little different. I see young A and R guys that go to the studio, they order lunch, they talk about social media. They fucking want them to shut the fuck up because you're not doing nothing except sucking up air in the room. I never wanted to do that. I don't want to suck the air out of the room. I kinda of wanna like Make sure the work is fucking getting done and, and, you know, like make sure the vibes are right, you know, and, and, uh, earn my artist trust. Like if I can earn your trust when there's something you don't want to do and like it's for your benefit, I can probably somehow we can meet in the middle and we can compromise and get this thing done. And if you don't do that, you're not doing your job. Did it put you in some interesting
0: predicaments? Cause it seems like you have have to play, you have to play interference between management Mm -hmm. and the label, which is essentially your employer.
2: You know, like I'm, I'm not a company man. I'm going to do what's best for the group and the artist. Um, and I had worked with some great managers and some terrible managers. Um, but but often, particularly when I worked with Chris Lighty, we had the same objective and we were on the same, we had the same point of view. So it was always pretty easy working with someone like him. Um, bad managers are bad managers. But, you know, like I, I didn't work with too many terrible managers on that side of it. And um, I was often at odds with my promo guys. You know, I think every year and promo guy, I don't get along. You know, you just got to fight the fight and and live to see another day and do your best for your artists. Like at the end of the day, my job is to help my artist get his point of view across in as unpolluted a way as possible. Undiluted to be as direct with their messaging as they want to be. And that's my duty, you know, right or wrong. Because I was like, I think about brand newbie and like in punks jump up to get beat down. There's a homophobic line. So in 1993, when I came out, 94, that wasn't such a thing. You know, it wasn't like in the crosshairs. So I knew better. Did I say anything to them? I did not. And I regret that. And you know what? If I had said something and they didn't want to do it, I would have had to respect their point of view. I don't believe in censoring my artist. Um, but I think we have to we have to proceed with some kind of sensitivity. And I think in 1994, there wasn't a lot of sensitivity in the air.
0: Yeah, I think it's unfair to, to judge something from 1994
2: by to today's standards. 100%. I am I'm, did some dumb shit I don't want to be judged for. We all have. Yeah. So another term that I think people
0: understand, but in a very general sense, and you've had some experience is this as well, is a music producer. Mm. And and I think that one's even more confusing because I think from a public's perspective, it's even those roles are even more diverse because you have somebody like... And, and I want to get your opinion because I don't even know if this is correct, but my impression is that say you have, you have some producers whose lane or specialty is maybe how to mic a drum kit. And then you have a producer, let's say on the other side of the spectrum, let's say like a Rick Rubin, for instance. Who, he says like,
2: oh, I like that. Maybe you could have a little more energy.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, he's, he's it's like, a, let's meditate. A self-professed non-musician. Right. And at least in his current incarnation, he seems like he acts almost
2: more like a, like a guru or a psychologist like a to try sensei. and like, extract, yes. obliquely yes. extract creativity from an artist way in the way he approaches it, and he's not hands-on like that, right? So. And then you have something like a, like a hip hop producer who he is probably everything.
0: involved in or actually be, making a maybe,
2: beat. Maybe not as much these days, but sure, certainly Timberland was making the beat and, you know, like premiere is, okay, there's no one doing anything for premiere or a Q-tip, right? Yeah. Um, no ghost producers involved in the process. Alchemist is doing everything himself. And, you know, that kind of producer is like songwriter producer, right? So it's connect, a different. The,
0: connect those dots of how those three approaches all fit
2: together. Okay. So there's guys like a Brendan O'Brien, great producer, right? Terry Date who did Soundgarden and... And and those kind of cats, and they're like engineer producers, and they, like you said, they know how to mic a drum, and they know how to use this and that, and how to, like, use um, the studio as an instrument, right? And they might have been engineers originally. And then there's guys who use a guy like that, say, Rick Rubin, who has a great engineer, but he is, like, kind of the spiritual guider, right? He guides you through it. And it's like, oh, you know, maybe um, think about uh, water when you're singing, <laughs> You know, when you're doing that vocal, like the high note, think about like the color of the sky, you know, something abstract like that or or doesn't say a lot. He does a, a lot by being um, transparent, by not being involved, right, by being opaque, if you will. And then you have people like a DJ Premier who's going to find that record, chop up that sample, program to kick the snare of the drums and give you Here Is Your Song. And he might even do the scratches in the hook, right? He's very involved. He's a songwriter. He's giving you the song. He is the habit of that session. So those are three different ways to do it. And where would you fall on that spectrum? Somewhere in the middle? Mm, Somewhere in the middle. I'm definitely not a Rick Rubin. And I, I, um, I made a lot of the beats on a lot of records. I work with like Everlast stuff. I did a lot of the the program and I taught myself how to do it. I had an engineer who was, uh, my partner, John Gamble, rest in peace. He was uh, more of a technician than me, but, but I found the source material often and it was my vision. So I was a visionary and a programmer to an extent. I didn't mix stuff. Um, I can run a Pro Tools rig. I forced myself to learn some things because I had to, to be self-sufficient. So I'm, I'm um, closer to Premiere than I was to Rick Rubin. <laughs> Um, I think. Okay.
0: And then, you know, there were some other really interesting like nuts and bolts in the, in the book that I found fascinating. Like just even the term, um, you talk about like a a paper bag deal where Mm -hmm. guys were literally just handed a sack full of cash to, to do a verse or to to make a beat, you know, and it it made me really wonder, it sparked a lot of questions about how the money works in the situation. depends.
2: Everything's different.
0: I mean, so I want to get your input because you were pretty candid about, there were some numbers in your book that I found really fascinating. And, you know, I'm wondering like, so A, do producers in A&R people, do they get royalties from the back end?
2: Um, Yes, you do. So if you're a producer, you have three points, usually prorated. If you're a heavyweight producer, you might get four out of the artist 12 to 16 or 20, whatever they're getting. Um, If an artist owns the master, you might get as much as 50% um, dependent. You get an advance, your royalty is subtracted by your advance. And often artists has to recoup for you to get any royalty. So if he got a million dollars, he has to sell a million dollars worth of records before you see a dollar. So your back end is dependent on him recouping. It is, um, often. And then as an A&R guy, you get a point and a quarter, and that also is dependent on on recoupment. Um, they kind of changed that, now a lot of it's just a bonus. You get a discretionary bonus um, based on your performance. And then
0: in terms of the producer in the middle that we were talking about, like a DJ premier, like at what point does the input from a producer lead to a song credit or publishing?
2: That's a good question. I think it's a blurry line. I don't, I don't think there is one concrete rule. I don't think Rick Ruman gets much songwriting um, credit, but I think um, I don't think he gets a lot of publishing. I think that Timberland gets
0: a lot of publishing. Because it seems like that in the fact, coupled with the fact that like as an A&R person, other than just the privilege of keeping your job, how do you benefit from being attached to an
2: extremely profitable and successful project? Well, one, you'll get a royalty. And two, you'll get a big raise and you'll go and work somewhere else for more money, which I did a few times in my life. So yeah, I mean, that's how you benefit. So it seems like all these kind of have a little bit of a gray
0: area and Mm -hmm. leads to what you talked about in this book of just how the music business is
2: just so cutthroat. and I mean, look, I'm, I work in some film and TV stuff and that's way more predatory. That's like the most predatory thing I've ever been involved with. Like you're you'll write something and you'll be the guy pitching it and you'll have like five people trying to whack your head off in that meeting. Like it happened to me recently. I won't name names, but I had to pitch for a large group of people and my agent was on the zoom and there was an agent for someone else on the zoom who tried to take my head off in the meeting. And he didn't realize I was at the same agency he was at. And my guy had to be like, Hey buddy, I'm over here down the hall. Like, you know, that's my guy. And he's like, oh, I had no idea. He's like, well, yeah, let's talk about it afterwards. And um, it's, you know, the music industry is predatory, but so that's what, a really what predatory. What was the issue? Try, just trying to take credit? or No, he wanted to, I was, I'm not in the guild, so he wanted to bring a guild guy um, that he represented, I imagine. He wanted some packaging type thing. He didn't want me to be the guy who was, he was like, oh, I got this guy over here, probably. That's what it seemed like. And my guy
1: had to shut him down. free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So, I
0: mean, it seems like at the end of the book, you have this realization that despite all of the success that you've had in the music biz, that your next chapter moving forward, whether it's because your age or the state of the culture or the state of the music business, that you're probably going to have to work outside of the music. And that's what I do in order to, and, and to be an entrepreneur. hundred percent. I should have done it earlier in my life. But see, that struck me as really strange because the whole, the whole tone of this book is that how, how you had so much grit and you had so much street smarts and so much hustle, and you were always able to like find a job and make a deal. And you would think that they would be one and the same, you know, but but it kind of reminded me of, um, Robert Evans, the
2: famous- oh, yeah, that's so funny you said it because that's what someone said. Someone said, your book is like the hip hop, the kid stays in the picture.
0: But if you look at, you know, if you peel back what happened with Robert Evans, like, so he, for the listeners, he he was the head of Paramount Studios in the early 70s. And made over, The Godfather. Oversaw some of the biggest movies of that era. Godfather. Bad Cocaine Problem. Love Story, Like he, just a larger than life figure. And
2: he was also like an incredibly charming, dynamic cat.
0: Absolutely. But despite the fact that the studio's saw huge successes with these movies and the fact that he had the prestige and the power and the profile of running that studio. At the end of the
2: day, he was basically a paramount employee. He was, and he was a maverick. He didn't, he didn't necessarily ingratiate himself to a lot of people. He was pretty, I don't want to say arrogant, but he was Bob Evans. He did Bob Evans. He wasn't a company man. He never really, I don't think he ever betrayed his integrity. You know, and I think that that came back to haunt him. But, I mean, do you see— He couldn't be bought.
0: Do you see a lot of parallels I with, do. with that He's in your my experience? Heroes. Because, I mean, he died—he he wasn't filthy rich when he no,
2: died. No, he actually lived with Brett Ratner when he died, I, I think. I've been to that house yeah. with Puff. Yeah, me too, and I think he—I um, think that's where he lived at the end of his life. Um, I'm not filthy rich by any means, but I am—I um, have my integrity, right? So maybe that's worth more than anything. Having your integrity is invaluable. You can't put a price tag on that shit, you I know?
0: just—I thought it was really interesting how you— you made the distinction of you had a lot of friends that worked outside the mm-hmm. label system who have economically fared much better than you.
2: Yeah, yourself. yeah, and I think that that's what I'm exploring a bit now um, on, on various levels, and I think that that's probably the place to do it. Look, who, nobody wants a, a 57-year-old white a and Argus on on hip-hop groups. There's not that many people who can see beyond the the obvious and understand, like, you know, look, I have this thing. with I don't want to say what it is, but a very big guy in the music industry was like, how come we don't run a labor? And I was like, I got one offer to do something like that. And, and I was like, I couldn't really work for the guy because, like, I don't want to work for anyone who's not smarter than me. And I was like, and hey, he's not smarter than me. And the guy, this person I'll leave, I'll leave nameless, who's uber-successful entrepreneur, was like, I totally get that. He's like, that guy is not as smart as you. Um, and I'm in the process of doing a big, not a big deal, but a, a deal with them. So they had offered me a job, and I didn't want the job. So it evolved into I'm going to have my own shop there. So, you know, and now it's the time to go do it, amongst other shops I have. Yeah, I mean, but does
0: does the music business, does it ultimately come down to just, like, youth and what's hot? I mean, is there really such a thing as, like, Clive's golden year? Does that really exist?
2: I mean, you know, like, Clive Davis is a great example. He had a long run. Lenny Warniker, you know, the guy who works at Warner Brothers, he's like, you know, he fucking produced the Buffalo Springfield. He's had a long run. He still works at Warner Brothers. Um, it's few and far between. Craig Calman's, like, my older than me, I think, in his early 60s. Like, so some guys can do it. You know, it depends on how much you can keep your, like your mouth closed, like restraining pen and tongue and a lot of that comes into play and I'm um. Look, man, like anyone knows me, like I'm pretty outspoken. I don't really give a fuck. Like, if you're, a, if you're an asshole, I'm going to be like, fuck you. Like, I don't listen to you. I'm not listening to it. I don't care. Yeah. Like, whatever you want to say, that's cool. But, you know, like my last gig, I had this moment with this woman who has since been fired. And she kind of was like, I knew she was trying to push me out the door. She wanted to run the show. I'm her obstacle. And I had to tell her, I was like, look, like, you need to know this. You will never define me. What you think of me and what you do with me as your, like, coworker means nothing to me. At the end of the day, do what the fuck you think you need to do because you cannot define me. I don't care what you think. I was like, you're, I didn't say she's a clown, but I was like, I just don't care what you think. Your opinion means nothing to me. And at the end of the day, I'm still going to be me. And you're going to be someone no one gives a fuck about. I didn't work there that much longer.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, politics aside though, in the music business, is it, is it really a young man's game? I mean, is is it possible to to be in your sixties, seventies and still be relevant to what's going on? I mean, is that a thing? It's a rarity.
2: I think it's few and far between, you know, Rick Rubin.
0: Yeah. All right, Rick. I mean, he's the exception that proves the rule.
2: I mean, he's one of them. You know, Jay is no spring chicken. Yeah. You know, I think there's some guys out there who are, you know, like I said, Lane Warner's in the seventies. He's still doing it. Craig Kalman's early sixties. Um, I have this theory that if you don't become the president of a label by the time you're 40 something, you'll never become the president of a label. So I've been a senior vice president a bunch of times. I've never been the president and I think I my expiration date for being the president is over. Is that the holy grail though? I mean, in terms of, of creativity and 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 no. and
0: financial reward? Financial reward, yes, for sure.
2: Ho- holy grail creativity, no way. No way. And 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 look, I'm an esoteric thinker when it comes to music. I believe in culture music, art music, not no, I probably would never sign a little Uzi Vert. Look, he's ultra successful, and he's really good at what he does, but that's not my cup of tea. So, you know, like there comes a time and a place when you have to know that you function in a niche world, and you have to be fine with that. To me, the apex of success for me would be run the jewels, right? Totally have integrity. They do what they want to do. They don't have to, like, play the game, and they get to exist in their own bubble, much like the Beasties did and a couple of other artists I love. So to me that's that's the pinnacle that's where I want to be, and that to me is obtainable that's like the the goal like I love where Alchemist is where where people like him I think Griselda this is cool to me it has integrity they're obviously generating real money Larry June et etc et cetera this is um you can be very successful on your own terms and you have to define what what success is to you
0: yeah um I want to talk about Dale soul for a second mm. um they had a really bittersweet season. I mean, I think S- sad, man, for, sad, but wonderful. For the first, for the first time, their entire catalog became available on mm-hmm. streaming services and mm. basically the same week, one of the founding members, Dave, he died passed, right before. passed away. Yeah, he died a week before. And, you know, you were so instrumental in, in, in getting those those guys started and getting them signed. And oh they
2: got signed. Monica Lynch signed them. I was just there. I was, um. it's the first thing I ever well, you worked were, on. You were a cheerleader for those oh, guys. Big time. And, you know, family. That's, those are my guys. Like, I always say I didn't go to college. I went to hip hop, right? And De La Soul was probably my first, uh, that would be my freshman year in college.
0: So, you know, there's such a, such a massively influential band in hip hop history, but it seems like there's almost a generation of kids who, because their music wasn't available, their music kind of just fell through the cracks. Yeah. And... You know, hip hop doesn't always age so well, especially nope. if you take nostalgia out of the mix. But 100%. I, I re-listened to Stakes Is High and Balloon Mind State. Ah, they're Preview, fucking great. And I was fucking blown away at how relevant yes. and fresh they still yes, sound. Yes, they're timeless.
2: Why, why is that? Because they're geniuses. You know, brilliance doesn't, they were that, they were just brilliance that doesn't have an expiration date. You know, genius doesn't have expiration date. Look at Stevie Wonder or John Coltrane or De La Soul or Tribe Called Quest or even Dr. Dre, for that matter. There's no expiration date on that stuff. That stuff is biggie. Like, I was talking to my young my young man t- yesterday, and he's like, yo, I listen to Big Now, and he sounds just—he sounds great. He sounds, like, current. And, like, you know, I think genius doesn't have um, an expiration date. You know, it ages beautifully, if you're lucky, like fine wine. And I would say De La is an example of that. You know, they're— um, When we made music, the the group of people who made music then in the the beginning of the golden era, progressive thinkers, you know, forward thinkers, rap isn't for forward thinkers anymore. The people who are creators are creating often for clout, for money, for fame. The goals aren't the same. The people who created music back then in the so-called golden era were making music to express themselves as cathartic. And I think that that's part of the reason as well. Wow. So- I'll switch gears for a second.
0: We uh we had Roy Wood Jr. on the oh, podcast recently. Okay. He's a brilliant, brilliant yeah, yeah. comic. Yeah, I know
2: him. He he actually me and him work, worked on something together.
0: Okay, all right. Yeah, well, cool. So so he has a, a comedy special called Imperfect Messenger, and and in that special, there's a there's a scene where he's saying, in order to portray the inhumanity of slavery, in a movie. You have to have a white actor that's willing to say some really abhorrent things on screen, right? And it's really—I won't—I won't attempt to, to make it into a joke, but it's really brilliant the way he pieces it together. But it, it made me think of a song that Everlast did with Prince Paul, where he had to play a dirty racist. Yeah, I got a crazy story. A dirty about
2: that. racist cop. There's a crazy story with that. When he did his vocals first, Donald Newkirk, and then was like, "You're not racist enough." Paul was like, "You don't sound racist enough," because he held back. He had to do it again. Yeah, because he was like, he was scared to say certain things. And they're like, nah, you got to go. And he was like, for real? Don Newkirk was like, yeah, you know, you always wanted to say that word. So he said it. You know? <laughs> and what was the atmosphere like in that studio? I mean, it was cool, man. It was Newkirk's house. Rest in peace, Don Newkirk. Yeah. That's like family. So we've, you know, it's like, that's our people. Yeah. I mean, Paul has this skit, I'm making fun of me on, on Ever, Everlast record on Whitey Ford. He said, yo, I, I heard you're looking for those Celtic beats. I got that. You know, so Paul's family. I mean, it's a fantastic album. I right? like, like Prince Among Thieves. Ah, it's great. It's just... Prince Paul, one of the most brilliant people I've ever known. Genius. Genius mind and a wonderful human being. All right. I'd love to get him on the podcast. If, uh... Good luck. All right. He lives in
0: Atlanta.
2: <laughs> He's shy. He's a shy person. Yeah. yeah. Um, so
0: I feel like, you know, your book culminates with a lot of death. Um, a little too much. Death of friends. Too many. Death of artists. And then, obviously, the death of of your dad and your mom. Yeah. But I really appreciate the fact that it really ends on an optimistic
2: note. Of course. And— We live on, so, you know, we carry those memories with us. We have to keep those people's names alive, keep them out there. It's very important. You know, you specifically mentioned—
0: uh, There's an interesting part where you you specifically mentioned your refusal to fall victim to the trap of a back in the day
2: mentality. Yeah, that shit is corny. To, what does that do for me? That doesn't pay my bills. Well, it's funny because it's so it's so easy to do that, and it's you so you walk around looking it's such entitled, a, though. It's That's such stupid.
0: A, it's such a trap, and it's so easy to romanticize the sure. back in the day, no matter who you are. Right. But I feel like. Your back in the day was pretty fucking exceptional. Like, you did yeah, a lot yeah, of was. really, really it cool was. stuff. And I feel like it, it's really admirable that you consciously refuse to live in the past despite kind of some of the
2: challenges you have in the present. Well, because I never liked those dudes who are complaining about the past. I saw Grandmaster Kaz today, and, and Kaz is such a positive dude. And um, I just think about people like him or Jammaster Master J or people who like, well, my dad, for that matter, people who were like, um, didn't want to get stuck back in in the cranky old man shit. That shit is corny. When the old dudes were like, that shit's not rap. They're not rapping good. Like, that De La Soul shit is, that shit is fruity. Look at those dudes with the purple shit and the pink shit and the flowers. Like, the shit was corny. So it's corny to be like that now. I also have to acknowledge that. If I think, if I'm looking for Rock Him in today's gene pool of rap, good luck, right? And you might find a gem here at Anderson Park a Kendrick. It's there if you really look, but it's not the majority of it. You have to know this. You have to know that you're dealing with a different kind of pool of talent. And once you wrap your head around that, it's fine. You find things that are palatable and it makes sense. And and that's that, you know, there's still a, there's a bunch of kids out there who rap really goddamn good right now. And you know, I just like, I try and find them dotes. Yeah. I believe in them. I believe in the power of of hip hop. I believe in the power of great rappers. There's a a paragraph in the book where you talk really
0: candidly about how you never really allowed yourself to fully enjoy most of your successes mm. for, for one reason or another. Mm. And you know, this book obviously- It's imposter syndrome. We all, we all have it mm. on some level. You know, well, this book obviously represents how much you've evolved since your success with Dela or Brand Nubian or KMD or mm. Everlast at mm. all. If you had an opportunity to go back in time and experience one of those career successes sober- and present mm-hmm. and really get to savor it like
2: you should have. Mm-hmm. What would that be? Um, maybe the Everlast stuff. I, I made a shit ton of money. I should have bought more shit property-wise. That's one thing. Um, I bought one thing. I should have bought a couple of things. said I bought a lot of gold chains and tricked off a lot of money. Um, that would be one of them for sure. I think maybe the stuff at Electra when I was in the midst of Dirty and Buster's making his record and Pete Rock and all of that. I think those things I would have enjoyed a little more. But you know, you can't live your life in regret. Things happen for a reason. Like you know, it is what it is. Wow. Well, like if I sit there and I lament, like what I should have, could have, would have. Uh, what, what does that do for me tomorrow? Nothing. Yeah. Like I'm not that person. And I think you you have as you get older, there's a couple of things you have to watch out. You you don't do that. You don't you can't like be a bitter old guy. And you also you have to resist uh, the notion to romanticize your past. Um, because you can't change it. You just got to make peace with it, right? And I think we often romanticize our adolescence the most because it's when we I, identify what we want to be, who we are, we establish our identities. That's okay if you're a writer, but if you're doing what I do, like full-time, it doesn't help you to romanticize your past because you're not going to build a future. Is is there a career success that you wish that you could have felt more pride
0: in the present and really been able to enjoy it?
2: Uh, I wish I could have said something. I don't want to say that, but I would wish I could have said something too dirty about his drug use and maybe had some effect, maybe have affected some change in that. Um, that I wish I could have done. And I also regret, this is more personal. So I was talking to Doom around 217, 216 before Malachi died, his son. And he had, um, oh, man, come come visit me in Grenada. Come down here. And I was, like, going through some things with my lady at the time. And, and it was like, I, you're not going alone. And I was like, man, this is not not the thing. And I should have just sat her the fuck down and been like, you know what? I'm going to go see my man who I haven't seen in a long time and spend some time with my man and have some laughs. And you can't really be part of this. And I let her run the show, and that was a huge mistake. And I missed that personal moment with my man who's no longer here. So that bothers me. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, we always like to end this podcast by—
0: Asking the guests to plug something that they're not directly involved in okay. whatsoever, but well,
2: can I plug something I am directly involved with first? Go ahead. Okay, so I um, I'm a producer on the Old Dirty Bastard doc for AE. It comes out in August. Sam Pollard and Jason Pollard directed and produced. I'm a producer and a music supervisor, and it's really good. So please watch the doc. I'm also in the midst of uh, a doc project with Ice T right now. So mm-hmm. you know, I'm kind um, of those things I'm full. plugging. Plugging good for you. Good for yeah. you.
0: Yeah. Okay, so definitely check those out. But something that you're not directly involved with, either a book, a movie, Mm -hmm. uh, a TV show, a social cause, an artist, Mm -hmm. is there something you feel just isn't getting the shine that it should you want to give? Mm, That's
2: a really good question. Kind of think about that for a minute. Uh, You know, I think we need to, um, we have to examine homelessness in America and and, um, systemic racism, inequality, economic inequality. America's in a fucked up place and and like I think one of the places where I see it the most is the privatization of healthcare and we have to somehow wrap our head around giving everybody in America quality healthcare and everyone deserves a place to live and we have enough wealth and enough housing um to do both of those things whether I sound like a socialist or not I don't really care I'm not a socialist but I feel the privatization of healthcare um Specifically, because I am subjected to it, is is uh, we're in a healthcare crisis in America, and we need to address this thing. It's spiraling out of control, and in the last five years, I've seen my healthcare become ridiculously expensive for me and my, my lady, and um, quality of healthcare go down. So, this is something that is at the forefront. As I get older, I think about it a lot. We have to reform our healthcare system in America. It's it's in a bad place.
0: Solid plug. Dante, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down, man. And I want to do one more plug. Sure. Up Son of the City, available now. Go yeah. check it out. You'll read it in a weekend. It's it's, it's a fantastic read. And Thank uh, you. I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of you. You did a great job, man. Thank you, boss. Hopefully our pass will cross soon. Cool, man. All right, homes. Peace. Thanks for listening and a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. This episode of The Plug was executive produced by Peter Buckingham with original theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan. Logo design and branding by Italic at www.italic-studio.com. Sound design by Brad Worrell at Soundwag. And you can check out my photography at justinj.com. Thanks again and be sure to tune in for future conversations.